So the passage before us this afternoon from Mark 9 is one that teaches, and maybe it merely reminds us, that the kingdom of God is upside down. And by this we mean to say that the kingdom of God is markedly contrary, even opposite, to the ways and means of the world. Modern spirituality in our day is often uh, the matter of adjustment or complementation, we might say. In other words, somebody comes to God's word, uh, the Bible, because they think, yes, I, I could use a little help. Uh, maybe I'm not understanding everything perfectly in my life. Uh, I have some gaps that could be filled in uh, by some welcomed instruction from God's word. But if we approach the word of God rightly, if we admit that the glaring problem of our lives is that we are sinners and we are bound for death and the grave, well, then we must approach God's word, the Bible, not as uh, complementation, not as filling in, not as adjustment to our wisdom, but really as a, a full transplant of God's wisdom for our own. Here is where we can see the, the blessing of despair. And, and that in itself should, uh, should set up for us the radical reading of God's word, the blessing of despair. But what is it that will get us to see that we don't need an adjustment or a complement to our own wisdom? What, what will bring us to say, I give up, is indeed despair. I give up, God. I, I don't understand. I, I don't get it. If you're there, God, then teach me, because I've reached the point of knowing that I know nothing. I think that's a good definition of despair. Despair is knowing that I know nothing. And that leaves me in great despair of myself, knowing that I know nothing and that I need a new knowledge. I need a brand new system, if you will, installed upon the hard drive of my mind and my heart. Only despair and, and the, really the crushing weight of reality will bring us to the point of being fully ready and, and willing to receive the teaching of God's word, uh, a teaching that runs contrary to the ways and means of life in this sad world. So on one hand, we can say that uh, God's word turns things upside down. The kingdom of God is upside down for us. But what we will come to see, if God will grant us his wisdom, is that God's word actually turns things right side up again. It will almost certainly seem like the kingdom of God is upside down until you see until you truly see it and, and begin to live in it. So imagine, for an illustration, imagine that you're handed a picture, uh, a painting. Uh, you hold it in your hand and you set it before your eyes. Um, you can't quite make it out. What is it? Um, what is this picture? Uh, but you don't want to appear foolish. Uh, so you begin to try to make some sense of it and you say, oh yes, I... Uh, I see it now. Uh, here's a tree, and, and uh, here's a person, and here's another person coming into the, the picture. Over here is, hmm, well, maybe 
like a, a lake or a river or something? Ah, yes, that's it. This is, this is a very good picture. But then comes the moment when someone comes to your side and says, well, actually, you're holding the picture upside down. You've been trying to make sense of the picture, and you've been pretending that the picture makes sense while it's upside down. What do you do now? Well, you, have to, you either have to admit that you've been wrong and be glad that uh, someone corrected you, or you need to continue uh, in, your, in your error. <clears throat> So Mark 9.36 records that Jesus took a child and uh, put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Can we hear the the otherworldliness of this instruction from Jesus? Can we hear the, the upside downness of his teaching? And this is the context then for, for the next passage, for verses 38 through 50. And the particular teaching to call us to a, a new and eternal wisdom is the call of Christ here to faithfulness in bringing up our covenant children. God has given our children to be born into the community and the fellowship of his people in Christ And the church is called to be faithful in teaching and training and leading these children that God has entrusted to us. That we might hear this call with clarity this afternoon and and with good understanding, let's first consider the teaching of Scripture that the world is really against Christ. That's the teaching of Jesus in verses 38 through 40, that the world is against Christ. Christ. Teacher, said John in verse 38, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. It was, uh, it was a teaching moment, as we say, and Jesus took the opportunity to teach his disciples something that they would need to learn in time, namely that they are not the only disciples of Christ around. We have very little information about who this man was, and uh, how it was that he was doing a miracle in in Jesus' name. But Jesus answers, do not stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can, in the next moment, say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. And the essence of Jesus' response is, is to urge his disciples to recognize Uh, faith in Christ and to be glad whenever they find faith in Christ among sinful human beings. The, The world is fraught with unbelief and rebellion against God and against his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is imperative that God's people in Christ recognize that that they are on the same side with each other. It's imperative that we learn to work together. One misreading of Jesus here uh, would be to hear him saying that uh, people are really neutral. Uh, 
whoever is not against us is is for us, said Jesus. And uh, and so we might misunderstand Jesus uh, as saying that as long as people haven't rejected Christ outright, they ought to, uh, or we ought to consider them as belonging to Christ. But there are too many other passages of Scripture that would keep us from understanding Jesus in this way. John 3.19, for example, says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Well, the, the result then is, is that we understand human nature to be in captivity to sin. This is what we mean by total depravity. Uh, we do not mean that human beings are always as bad as they could be. Instead, the total of total depravity refers to the wholeness or totality of the human being. It is not the case that part of us is affected by sin while another part of us is free of sin's domination. Uh, It is not the case that our bodies are enslaved to sin, but that our souls or spirits are free and pure. It is not the case that our minds are enslaved, but that our emotions are pure. It is the case, rather, that we are completely fallen in sin body and soul, heart and mind, we are totally depraved. And so it is that uh, John 3, 21 says uh, immediately next uh, that whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. In other words, only the person whose heart of rebellion is renewed by God will come to faith in Christ. And whoever comes to faith in Christ will come confessing that what they have done in believing the truth, this they have done only through God, only by his blessing. So it's against the backdrop of this teaching that we need to hear the call of God to bring up our children in the faith. And this ought to move us immediately to to hear God's call with, with solemn hearts. Because while our children belong to the covenant community by way of baptism, they belong to the world by way of the flesh. That is, by the way of their sinful nature. By nature, our children are rebels, just as we are in the flesh. By nature, our children are against Christ. And it's only as God gives new life to us and to our children that we live by the truth and come into the light as believers in Christ. And this is one of those times when something within us is likely to say, well, Wow, that's just awfully pessimistic. But this is really one of those times when we need to hear God's word saying, well, this is reality. This is not an easy teaching of scripture, but this is reality. This is what's real. Human beings are are slaves to sin, and, and, and we too share in that same humanity. And the application then is, is that we sense the weight and the, and the significance of God's call 
to be faithful in bringing up our children to know him and to be reconciled to him through faith in Jesus Christ because a remarkable thing has happened within the church. God has given us these little rebels that we might teach them and 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 be used by him to to turn them away from rebellion and to train them to know and to obey Jesus Christ. God has given these children to be surrounded by the constant ministry of his word and spirit. God has chosen to use the church to be at work in the lives of his children to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. We have before opened God's word together to learn what baptism does and does not do. Uh, A certain emphasis needs to be put on what baptism does not do, namely that baptism itself does not save our children. But the point also needs to be made clear what baptism does do. Baptism signifies to us that something remarkable, something astounding has happened. As a covenant child is baptized, the the sacrament signifies that God has given a child to be born into a Christian family, do we, do we realize how significant that is? Granted, we, we don't know the fullness of that child's life, but this much we do know that God has given that child dead in sin, yet to live daily under the powerful, life-giving ministry of his word and spirit goes without saying, doesn't it, that God God doesn't do that for every child born into a world, um, a world that is in rebellion against Christ. God doesn't give every child to live under such pronounced blessing. And whenever God does do this, he does it purely by grace. And not because some parents are more worthy in themselves than, than other parents. And whenever God gives a child to the covenant community of his people, they receive the sign of his covenant in Christ. And, and he calls upon us to recognize what a, what a blessing it is for that child to be held in the arms of believing parents. But coupled with this teaching is the further teaching of Jesus that makes us to understand the the seriousness of sin. When when rightly understood, uh, this teaching too will will move us to sense the the weight of God's calling to to bring up our children in the right way. Because Jesus teaches here that sin is is not just a, a a pesty human problem. Instead, the wages of sin is death, and death is not just clinical death. The heart no longer beating, the lungs no longer breathing. Rather, death is the matter of God's punishment. His retribution through eternal suffering for a life of rebellion against him. We may at times wonder whether the Bible really teaches the doctrine of hell. And if it does, whether it's uh, really as bad as 
some people say, but, but here in Jesus' own teaching is a, is a very clear description of how severe hell will truly be. And here is a very clear warning from Jesus that, that such is what awaits the sinner. So if we ask how serious is sin, Jesus answers this way. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Cut it off, says Jesus. Pluck it out. Because sin is just that serious, landing the sinner in hell. Jesus' point here is not, not to call upon us to mutilate our bodies. The point of Jesus is to get our attention. And he surely does that, does he not? He gets our attention and he communicates to us just how serious sin really is. Jesus is using a figure of speech called hyperbole and and in this way he he exaggerates to make a strong point. And let us not think that Jesus is, is, is exaggerating, however, the seriousness of sin. Sin is so serious that we might indeed take such drastic steps to avoid it. The ultimate message of God's word is, is, is that we can't avoid hell. Because having cut off one hand, we still have another to use in sin. Uh, having cut off one foot, we still have another one to use in sin. Having lost one eye, we can still see with the other. And then having disabled ourselves completely, perhaps, well, yet we are guilty of having thrown away the abilities that God gave us to serve him. And we are left guilty of failing to do the good that we ought to have done. So here is a passage of Scripture that, that drives us to Christ. Here is a passage of Scripture to make us cry out to God for mercy because we are, we are finally helpless to avoid the eternal suffering of hell. And, and the thing so dire, so dreadful about the suffering of hell is that it will never end. We say of heaven that uh, when we've been there a thousand years, you've heard the song, Bright Shining as the Sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. But for those in hell, 10,000 years, burning like the sun, they will have no less days to lament their ways than when they first begun. So let that thought soak in to your heart and your mind. So here's a passage to draw out of us, the cry for mercy. And here's a, a passage to make us flee to the cross where Jesus Christ suffered hell for us. On the cross, Jesus suffered far more than being thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. On the cross, Jesus was thrown into hell where the fire never goes out. On the cross, Jesus endured the worm that does not die, and he was salted by the fire that is not quenched. And as he suffered and died in our place, he set us free from hell and from every threat of hell forevermore. How serious is sin? It's no more or no less 
serious than hell itself. So how serious should we be about teaching our children the way of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? Again, we must be as serious as hell itself because our children are born with a sinful nature that is hell-bent in rebellion against God. So here's the third point. As the church, we have a great responsibility for the children God has given us. And it's a glorious responsibility, which is to say it's, it's a great privilege because, again, God has so graciously provided that our children should should grow up knowing him as their Savior God through Jesus Christ. Even from the youngest of ages, our children get to grow up knowing that Jesus is their Savior. God has ordained to use us to do his gracious work in the lives of our children. But the greater our privilege, the greater our responsibility. And so it is that Jesus warns us in verse 42 that if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Woe to the church that does exactly the opposite of what God has called upon his people to do. If God has called upon his people to bring up children in faith, woe to the church that neglects that calling and even teaches the children to sin. This is not to say that it's easy to watch our children grow up with all this hanging over their heads, so to speak. It may seem easier to deny the teaching of God's word that human nature is bent on sin and rebellion. Why tell that to your children? It may seem easier to deny that sin will be punished in hell. It may seem easier to urge our children simply to join the church like they would join a club and keep up the family traditions. But then we lose sight of the dire reality and the urgency of the matter And we risk leaving our children untaught, maybe going to church on the rolls of the church, but untaught and unbelieving before God as they live and and die within an unfaithful church. Well, in this Lord's Day, let us recognize the weight of God's call and, and our responsibility to preach, teach, and Train our children in the Word of God. The, the, the church is here to help parents. And the church together works to see our children grow and learn. And we hope make a profession of their faith in, in Jesus Christ. Children need to hear the Bible. They need to hear it being read and explained in the home, and they need to see their parents practicing and teaching the faith before they can claim that faith as their own. I do not know that there is a higher calling than Christian parenting. It's a, it's a daunting task. But if we see that we have failed in the past, and I'm sure we, we do see our failures. Well, let us not despair of God's grace, but as we are forgiven in Christ, let us set out again, praying for strength, 
seeking wisdom, seeking to be faithful to the call, opening God's word with our children, praying for them, praying for them every day. And let us be confident that this is God's appointed way. This is the way God works through parents, through the church, to bring His children to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I have. Amen. Let's uh, bow in prayer together. This, O God, probably not anyone's favorite passage, because it is heavy with teaching of about sin and about hell and about the dangers of unfaithfulness for us and for our children. So we do pray that as we receive your teaching, we will remember your grace, that we are forgiven of our failures, but may we also, by your grace, be ever more, ever more diligent in uh, praying for, caring for, teaching and training the covenant children that you have so wonderfully and graciously given into each Christian family and into the life of the church. Thank you for your blessings. May you also bless us with faithfulness, with your blessings. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.